middle of the country, but not middle of the road opinions. It's the podcast dedicated to sports in the air capital of the world. I'm going to Wichita. Wichita, Kansas, and beyond with Tommy Castor, Weston Mills, and Blake Cripps. This is Keeper of the Games. Some may say that we are wildly unqualified. Some may say that we are only mildly entertaining, but I say that we are exactly where we need to be, helping you, the disgruntled Kansas basketball fan, and by that I mean the state of Kansas basketball fan, get over what has been a very short and very disappointing March Madness. And with that, we welcome you back into the Keeper of the Games podcast. This is episode number 59, where it's never March sadness, unless Weston misses out on one of those prop bets, which I'm sure probably happened this last weekend. (laughs) I am Blake Cripps, joined once again by Tommy Castor, the unofficial Chicken Little of the Jayhawk Nation. Tommy, really looking forward to hearing your thoughts this week on the state of the Crimson and Blue. I know there are a lot of things that you're going to want to talk about on this program, but the only reason, the absolute only reason that I showed up here today was to check on my dear friend Weston Mills because I have been following his tweets for the last couple of weeks, seeing how delusional he has become, and I really wanted to see it for myself in person to make sure he hasn't completely gone crazy 100%. So that's the only reason why I'm here today. So I'm glad that Weston is here. I'm glad at least, you know, visually he looks okay. We'll see how things turn out when we actually hear from him. Well, I mean, I guess we have a we have to do a welfare check now on Weston. So first of all, Weston, how are you? And secondly, and maybe most importantly, how's that bracket looking right now? So first, I'm doing just fine. Uh, if you guys weren't paying me so much to be on this podcast, I probably wouldn't talk about the Jayhawks for two weeks. Uh, second, <laughs> Secondly, in response to Tommy, I've got 30 minutes prepared on why uh, Bill Self should have played Mitch Lightfoot 28 minutes and, and why they would have won if he oh did. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, this three. tired argument is back again? Uh, well, we'll see. I guess we'll see. The Number three bracket i haven't even looked at the bracket but i did a i don't know if you guys have done a, a player pool before you know where you draft five or six players and you know it's just total points scored for the whole thing so you get it's kind of a combination between predicting how the bracket goes and then the best players in the tournament um and that's been a lot of fun still alive in in that but uh that's a that's a fun one the bracket god I, is anybody's bracket i think i think i heard today that this is the lowest average remaining seed into the sweet 16 so we've got all sorts of a mess this year more so than usual it's been very unpredictable i believe that i did at least predict that that there would be no way to know who is going to make it and who thought that the power conference was going to be the pac-12 coming out of the first weekend but yet here we are make sure you hit that like and subscribe button before we go any further if you haven't already podcast dropping weekly at cogpod.podomatic.com and is also available on a veritable smorgasbord of podcasting options you can also watch on youtube and once again the best way to get in contact with us is probably our Twitter feed, CogPod on Twitter, CogSports.com on the World Wide Web, or Facebook.com slash Keeper of the Games. Coming up on the show today, Wichita State is out, and a big contract 
for Salvi. But we begin today with the University of Kansas men's basketball team. They at least got two games in the big dance. They wrap up the season 21-9, 12-6 in the Big 12, 13-1 at home after a first-round come-from-behind victory against number 13 seed Eastern Washington and then a Monday night massacre against the University of Southern California, one of the worst losses in the history of the Big 12 in the NCAA tournament and Bill Self's worst loss as a Kansas head coach. So we'll go in chronological order, guys. Uh, we start with a 93-84 win against the Eagles of Eastern Washington, the number 13 seed. Marcus Garrett was the real big star in this game, in my opinion, the most consistent player, 9 for 13 shooting in this game, 23 points. Obviously, David McCormick was the big difference in the second half, erupting for 20 of his 22 points, led KU with 9 rebounds in this game. Kansas shot a blistering 7 of 13 from the three-point line in the second half to overcome the Groves brothers. And we got a shout-out to, you know, we call out people when they get it wrong on this show, but for the first shout-out, got a shout-out to Tommy Castor because uh, he very much predicted that Mr. Groves, the player of the year, the big sky, was going to be a factor in this game, and he certainly was. 35 points, 5 for 11 from the three-point line, three block shots, but KU with 55 points in the second half, and my opinion, guys, best offensive half of the entire season for the University of Kansas. They did exactly what Bill Self wanted them to do. They played inside out through David McCormick, and they found open three-point shooters by moving the defense. David McCormick was dominant on the inside. When he wasn't, they were able to find three-point shooting. It was a perfect blend. 12 assists one turnover in the second half. The Jayhawks then moved on to, well, what Tommy Castor predicted was the danger zone. So he was two for two on that in the form of Southern Cal. And boy, was he ever correct. But Tommy, we will start first with Eastern Washington. Your thoughts on what was a pretty shoddy start to begin the game. But in the second half, 55 points, I thought the best 20 minutes of offense for Kansas the entire season. Yeah, you're not wrong there. And, you know, Blake, I, I need to give you credit, you know, credit where credit is due. You did it to me. I'll, I'll give it back to you well, because you, you said, well, you said on last week's program that the Jayhawks were going to need to improve their defensive you know, output. And that was really a, an Achilles heel for the Jayhawks in both games, but yeah. specifically the Eastern Washington game, you know, the final score, I mean, it looked like a track meet. It looked like an NBA final score, you know, 93, 84. This is a Jayhawks team that was ranked the highest in defensive efficiency in Kimpom in their region going into the NCAA tournament. And they gave up 83 points to the Eastern Washington led in part, as you mentioned to Tanner Groves and his brother, Jacob Groves. And, and Jacob was really strong in the first half. Tanner Groves played outstanding all game for the most part. So, you know, it was just one of those situations where defensively it wasn't there and KU needed to have shots fall for them to be able to come back and eventually get the victory. And, you know, you credited Marcus Garrett and you're not wrong, but also, David McCormick, as you also said, was that spark that Kansas absolutely needed to win that game. And there were question marks going into that game, as we all remember, about how, you know, number one, how many minutes David McCormick would even get. And number two, how effective would he be? You know, leading up to the game on Saturday, you know, Bill Self had even said, the David McCormick only went through about 75% of practice and looked pretty winded and looked pretty tired. And who can blame the guy, you know, after being, you know, on the shelf for as long as he was uh, after the, the COVID issues with the team. 
but he came out and you could tell he looked really tired of that game, but he was, ab- he was absolutely effective. And, and so, you know, I don't think that, I don't think that Kansas wins that game without David McCormick and, and, no. and it, it gives me significant hope. And I, I know we'll probably get to the future of the KU squad in, in a sure. little while on the program, but it gives me significant hope for the future for Kansas that David McCormick not only has improved his game throughout the season, but ended on a pretty strong note. And I, I would be optimistic to see what he, can do next year so uh, i'm going to start this conversation by hand up i don't i don't exactly know how the plus minus you know stat is formed but i'm not going to just let you guys sit here and and praise david mccormick and not talk about some of the problem kansas had on, on the defensive end because Here's, I mean, here's the truth of the matter. David McCormick could not guard Tanner Groves. David McCormick could not guard Evan Mobley. And not only that, we saw in, in the USC game, and I guess I'm going to have to segue into USC because kind of what I want to talk about really goes into both situations. David McCormick was fine on the offensive end, but in both games, we continued to trade twos for threes. And this has been a, a, a significant pattern in history with Bill Self and his losses in the tournament. We die by by other teams hitting the three. Some of that's going to be luck. You guys, we talked about this earlier in the year. I suggested at the time, you know, to some degree, I don't – I think you can only defend the three so much. It's putting a hand in the face, running by, those kind of things. But some of it is shooters are going to make shots on nights and shooters are not going to make shots on other nights. And so some of that is bad luck, catching a team when they're hot on a night, but also – one thing that continues to be a pattern is Bill Self continues to recruit big men who don't guard, who cannot guard on the perimeter. And that's the way the game of basketball is being played now. It's just that simple. Um, and that's not to say that there isn't a place for David McCormick. Certainly there was no other option. I mean, he had to play the minutes he was going to play. He was, you know, he was that efficient player that I've been asking him to be on the offensive end, both Eastern Washington and then he kind of really shrunk away in the USC game. But that, I mean, there's a whole host of issues that weren't necessarily offensively were not David McCormick that allowed him to only score that five points, but, but he was more efficient, but when he can't guard on the perimeter, we just get killed consistently because the, when big men hit three and then from there, it makes everybody else scramble and leaves other guards on the perimeter open. And it creates that, that, barrage of three pointers and then we go down on the end on the other end and we play through a big man and so what we do when we do that is all we do is trade threes for twos the math on that's never going to add up and this continues to be a pattern with bill self and i get some of it is you can only recruit who's going to come i mean only the players that are willing to come to kansas are the players you can get so if david mccormick is the best best big man out there that's going to come to kansas you get it there's no doubt he's a great player but but this is what you're going to run into you're going to run into these situations when you continue to recruit big men that that don't play modern basketball, and that's what David McCormick does. So it's something that Kansas is going to have to figure out. They're going to have to address. I mean, you guys can you can look at me all you want, and you can try to defend David McCormick, but but the big man doesn't play modern basketball. It's not how the game is played anymore. It's just that simple. And we've gotten beat. We got beat by USC. We almost got beat by Eastern Washington. Auburn knocked us out the last time. The last time somebody and this is this is going back to 2003. I saw this stat from Jesse Newell, which is pretty interesting. The last time an opponent made 11 of 18 threes against Kansas, the 2003 Syracuse Orangemen. So. It's just been a pattern of consistently getting beat by hot three-pointing shooting teams, and there needs to be some things to do to address that. And at this time, I don't, I don't know necessarily what that is, other than getting big men that can play that position. 
That's one of the most insane comments I've ever heard. What are you talking about? Kansas last year was the national championship favorite playing the exact same style of basketball. And this season they were 21 and nine on the year. They didn't have a bad season. They had the grand total of zero yeah. losses hold against on, bad teams. On. The Wait, formula no, is on. fine. Hold on though, Blake. How'd they do in the tournament last year? It wasn't played, so you don't know. They didn't That's get to the play. Thing. They had a fantastic they team. Had and they a had a fantastic season. They had, but that doesn't matter. Nobody cares if you have a cool season. It's for national championships or nothing at Kansas. And here's the thing. That's probably how they would have got balanced last year. We are not Kentucky fans where we only judge by six games. If you want to do that, that's fine. I'm not judging a team by six games. I'm not going to do it because we would have been disappointed all but two years of my life. And if you're going to say Kansas basketball has been a failure all but two years since 1984, you go ahead and say that. I'm not going to say that. That's fine. But ask Bill Self what his expectations are. Ask those players what their expectations are. I guarantee you it's to win a national championship in correcting the roster to win a national championship is should be the goal i'm not saying it's a failure but that is the goal when you're at kansas look look this this is a this is an absolute asinine argument on on both sides because it's not an all or nothing situation guys you know multiple things can be true at the same time does kansas have big men that more often than not they don't they're not able to effectively get out to the perimeter and defend big men that are shooting the three and can make the three consistently. Yes, I think that can be true. And I think David McCormick is an example of that. I also think Yudoka Azabuki was an example of that. You know, there have been some other big men uh, in years past that have done a little bit of a better job doing that. But that's not who Kansas has had over the last few years. So that that is OK that that's true that that can be true also it can be true that teams are hitting a disproportionate amount of threes against kansas when they typically don't do that you know so like i don't know what the answer is i don't and i don't think you can just absolutely point it to kansas has a hard time defending on the perimeter because i don't know if you guys had a chance to see some of those threes that were being made in both of these games they were ridiculous with hands in their face, mm-hmm. step back, you know, Steph Curry, 2014 Golden State Warriors type three points, you know, shots that were being made by both Eastern Washington and USC. So I don't think it's just an issue of, oh, you know, the the game of basketball has changed and the way that, you know, the big men defend for Kansas and the way that Bill Self runs his offense at Kansas, you know, that is the contributing factor to why Kansas lost against USC. Weston, as you said just a few minutes ago, there were a myriad of issues about USC, which I know we're going to be talking about in just a few minutes. But at the end of the day, the bottom line is that it has been a perfect storm for Kansas over the last several years. And I think some of that just has to do with the mentality that opponents have in the tournament facing a team like Kansas. They know that they are going to have to put up their best shot against a blue blood like the Jayhawks the same way that another squad would you know do the same thing against UNC or Kentucky or Duke the same thing is going to happen with Kansas time in and time out I don't know it might just be lightning striking and multiple times in a row but I also think that there are some contributing factors to it so the bottom line is that I don't think you can just point your finger at David McCormick and say David McCormick is the problem and David McCormick is the reason why Kansas is losing in the tournament because I don't think we would have said the same thing about Yudoka Azabuki now I know they're not the same player, but I don't think you would have said the same thing about Udoka had the tournament happened last year and Kansas been bumped out of the, been knocked out of the tournament. I just don't think that would have happened. 
Well, so going on to USC, the Jayhawks had a lead, uh, cut to eight, 29-21 with 4-10 to go to get into what Weston wanted to talk about. Back-to-back layups by Brown and Garrett taking the ball inside on the Trojans ahead of that 331 media timeout. And for me, guys, it was really a 20-minute stretch of the game. Last three and a half minutes or so of the first half, and then about the last 16 minutes of the game, the last media break, of the first half where it was a 9 nothing run, 11-0 run overall that I thought really broke the spirit of Kansas going into the locker room. And in that second half, KU had cut the deficit down to 16 at that first media timeout. And then here come the threes from Southern California. Jalen Wilson did not play against Eastern Washington. He was a shell of himself in the USC game. Eight minutes, two points, no rebounds. Marcus Garrett was the only player who mustered any kind of reliable offense and was very inefficient. 15 points on 6 of 15 shooting. USC had five players score in double figures, 61% from the three-point line, and KU was a woeful 6 for 25 from the three-point line. David McCormick, only five points, only had four attempts in the game. USC really doubled him quickly and, to me, made the decision that they were going to make somebody else other than David McCormick beat them, and it didn't happen. And, Tommy, you were 100% correct on this, um, so I have to give you credit again. You said that USC was underseeded. You said that they were much better than a six seed. And, you know, no no matter how you want to pie up the blame, for me, USC for the 40 minutes, at least on that night, they were the better team. For a hundred percent were the better team and deserved to win. Not only were they the better team for those 40 minutes, but I would argue that for those 40 minutes, the only other team in the tournament that USC might have lost to in that game would have been Gonzaga. That's it. Maybe. And I think they would have given Gonzaga a game had it been that exact same effort for 40 minutes. You know, they came out on fire. But here's the thing, and I, I th- and we can get into all of the details as to exactly what w- went wrong for Kansas. I mean, spoiler alert, everything went wrong for Kansas in that game. <laughs> yeah. But this is from the the Shot Quality Twitter. Shot Quality is a, 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 or a page that they track, you know, sort of the predictive uh, outcomes of games based on shot selection uh, after the fact and that sort of thing. But according to Shot Quality, based on the shots that both teams took, overall, the sh- it doesn't matter if it went in or, or didn't go in, just based on the overall shots that were taken by both teams, Kansas wins that game 50% of the time and UFC wins that game 50% of the time. Kansas was missing bunnies over and over and over and over again. Shots that they typically make shots that, you know, usually fall for the Jayhawks. And unfortunately in this game, simple as, as this USC made the shots that they needed to make and Kansas didn't. I know that's overly simplifying the outcome of the game, but ultimately, guys, that's that's really what happened. Like you said, Weston, you know, I do agree with you when you say that, you know, D- that Kansas and David McCormick specifically had no answer for Evan Mobley. I I talked about Evan Mobley on the show last week, you know, and about how, you know, I I in fact, I was bold enough to say well before you know Kansas was even matched up with USC that if that game were to happen Kansas would be an underdog in that game they absolutely were I think they were what a one and a half uh, point dog in that game or, or something close to that so you know ultimately that just the weapons were there the athleticism was there for USC the mo- most importantly the length was there for USC guys the thing that was most frustrating to me in this game uh, against USC 
it wasn't necessarily the fact that Kansas wanted to feed the post because we all know that's what Bill Self likes to do. That's just kind of the way that the game works. Feed the post and then maybe kick it out for a three or, or, or whatever, but always feed the post first is kind of, you know, Bill Self's game plan. That didn't frustrate me because we all knew that's what was going to happen. And David McCormick was effective in the Eastern Washington game. So why not see if he can do that again against USC? What was frustrating to me was all of the times that the guards for Kansas, the wings for Kansas, decided they wanted to drive it. They wanted to try to put up a ridiculously contested and guarded layup and just it was it never went in. It never went in for Kansas. It happened multiple times. Marcus Garrett had a little bit of success with that. I mean, like a little bit, but I don't know how many times Christian Brown passed up an open look at three to drive the ball in and either get it swatted away or you have it be super contested and miss the shot. And that happened over and over and over again. I was yelling at my TV. Why do you keep driving the ball against the length that USC has? Shoot the three. Even if it doesn't go in, just keep launching it. That's the only chance you're going to have to beat these guys. And and that's ultimately not what Kansas was able to do. I think that was a, a huge factor to why the Jayhawks lost against USC. And not just lost, but I got absolutely boat raced out of the building. So two things on that, too. You know, one thing we talked about in the beginning of, of the year or throughout the year, really, was the fact that Kansas didn't really have a guy, right, to just take over the game, the guy you could count on to step in. And, and, not, and it's not that – and I'm not particularly focused on that, but then kind of the reason why with the other guys was that inconsistency, right? Why we couldn't really pin any one person on this team as the guy. And, and that's what you had here. I mean, we, you know, you had a combination of everyone kind of hitting that inconsistency stretch. I mean, you had Christian Brown one for six from the three point line. Ochai went two for eight from the three point line. Bryce Thompson shot probably the first time he shot three, three pointers in a game, but went oh for three from the three point line. I mean, again, just all that inconsistency building up. And then, you know, going back to, you know, the little rant I went on about playing modern basketball, here's kind of also the other problem. And look, this, this isn't about David McCormick. Is it as much about the overall picture of, of how Bill Self wants to play? And I want to stop for a second because I am in 100% not trying to suggest that this is Bill Self's fault or I'm not one of those fans that I can't believe there is. Did you guys even know there's an actual there's folks out there that think Bill Self should be replaced at Kansas? I was seeing this on Twitter like that's people bizarre. are morons. It's nuts. Morons. That's not me because I know Bill Self is I mean, he's one of the smartest college basketball coach of of this generation and he's going to Hall it of out. Famer. That's right. Yes. Kind of weird that they'd be Hall of Famers during their career, but that's a different discussion for today. Um but so here's the thing. You talk about, you know, the guys driving in and why they continue to do that. Well, teams consistently played and USC was consistently overplaying the three-point line, whether that's running at a man as opposed to approaching a man saying, go ahead, drive by me because I know my big man is down at the basket because your big man is not going to space the floor for everybody. You know David McCormick is playing within 10 feet. Now, he can he can shoot from 15-ish, but that doesn't space the floor for our guys to drive. And you're right. It's still a poor decision for them to continue in, but I felt like at times, 
unfortunately, that was the right decision as a guard when you see a guy run at you as opposed to approach you to say, hey, I'm going to give you a contested three, but I'm not going to let you drive by me. They, they're just running at Kansas perimeter shooters knowing they have that help on the backside. And that's and it doesn't even have to be – and there wasn't any answers for Kansas. Mitch Lightfoot does not does not space the floor. David McCormick does not – Space the floor. Jethro, Jethro Muscadin, not not spacing the floor. There wasn't anybody on the roster to, to help with that. Um, you know, we didn't we did see a little a little bit more five guard look, but with Jalen Wilson not just being what he was, that you know that's almost irrelevant because we couldn't provide that. But there there just needs to be at least an option on that Kansas roster on that Kansas bench to help space things out so that guys can react the way they need to, as opposed to just shooting or just driving. Um, and it's just not there right now. And that, look, it, and that's the reality of the matter. Sometimes you can recruit those guys and sometimes you can't, but it's something that I would like to see maybe an emphasis put on for Kansas moving forward. You know, I, I saw this, uh, this stat when I was looking at the box score and, and it might make Blake roll his eyes because I know Blake, how much you love looking at plus minus numbers. And, you know, I know that you've said that it's not indicative usually of an overall output of a game. And I agree with that. It's not the it's not the only thing you can look at, but you know it is it is a, a contributing factor. Um, and we all know it was such a, a blowout. There wasn't going to be a single Jayhawk. Yeah, that in, was in, in the in, in, in blowout the games, the plus minus means less because right. You know when you're losing by thirty, it doesn't really matter. However, I think it is important to note that Christian Brown in 33 minutes on the court was minus 36. Um, you know, so, you know, the, the, my, my only point in my only point in bringing that up is that it, you know, I, I understand the David McCormick argument. Right. I understand not spacing the floor. I, I I understand these individual things. It was everybody, guys. It was everybody. You know, again, it was a blowout. So everybody's everybody's going to be in negative numbers. Marcus Garrett, who was the only guy that was at least semi effective in stretches of that game. He was minus 24 in 31 minutes on the court. You know, David McCormick was minus 23. So was Dewan Harris in 28 minutes on the court. Ochai Abaji in 34 minutes was, was minus 22. You know, so every it was a contributing factor for everyone. There was not really, you know, I, I had a hard time finding a, a single positive, which I don't think has ever happened at least in my lifetime of watching Kansas basketball, even in losses, you know, even in like that, that game back at the beginning of the year in that, the, the beginning of that down stretch for Kansas, when they got blowed out by Texas, there were even a couple of individual performances that I could look at and be like, all right, well, at least, at least we had that. There was nothing in this game. Um, that th- There was not a single individual contribution other than Marcus Garrett working his tail off to really write home about, in my opinion. Yeah, I thought Marcus Garrett actually defensively was worn down a little bit because he was the one guarding Evan Mobley, which was a little bit of a surprise. And he did hold Evan Mobley below his scoring average. Now, Mobley still got a double-double with 10 points and 13 rebounds. Um, But I thought Garrett did a pretty good job of trying to hold Evan Mobley in check. Obviously, Isaiah Mobley was a little bit of a surprise. But, you know, you look at the second half of that game, guys, when it was still in doubt, the Mobley brothers were pretty average in the second half. They 
combined for six points, five rebounds on two of six shooting. For me, I would have liked to see the ball go inside to David McCormick a lot more. He only had one field goal attempt in the second half, which to me is absolutely insane. And I totally disagree with the shoot more threes theory from Tommy. I mean, they weren't going in. I don't know how that shot quality thing that you referenced, I don't know how that grades open threes. In my opinion, KU had a ton of open threes. Like almost every other three that they had was wide open, and they just missed. It was one of the worst three-point shooting days that they had all year. No, no matter what the, the statistics say, KU is a team that probably should have hit about 50% of the threes that they took. I thought they got a lot of high-quality looks from outside that they just didn't make. So to me, I didn't see a lot of bunnies that got missed. I saw a lot of contested shots. Not that USC was blocking a lot of shots. I thought they affected more shots than they blocked. But you know, I would have liked to have seen David McCormick try to shoot more. I don't know what the record is when David McCormick shoots under five times a game, but I'm guessing that KU has a much better record when he shoots more than that. So that's what I would have liked to have seen. You know, I thought the Mobley brothers were kind of just an afterthought in the second half. It was guys like Isaiah White who absolutely torched Kansas in the second half of that game. They He killed KU in the second half of that game. In the second half, Eddie had eight points, nine for White, eight for Shavaz Goodwin. Like, how are these guys the ones that are beating Kansas? And one thing that we haven't talked about, I would have loved to have seen the tournament played out if Kansas does not have to go on quarantine as a team because you've got a full-strength David McCormick, you've got a full-strength Jalen Wilson, which I think made a bigger difference, would have been a bigger difference in the USC game than David McCormick because of the size and the ability to guard more positions like Weston alluded to. Jalen Wilson was a non-factor. And remember, this was a guy that was stacking double doubles throughout February. And the fact that he had to go out, and we don't know whether or not he actually had coronavirus, but we do know that he was not the same coming back. And we've seen it so many times. We saw it with Baylor when they got out of quarantine, weren't the same team. Kansas was not the same team coming out as well. So I don't know what your guys' thoughts are on that, but I would have loved to have seen a alternate history where Kansas you know, doesn't have to go on quarantine the week before the biggest event of the year. Spoiler alert, they still would have lost the game. Um, It might not have been a 35-point loss, but they still would have lost the game. Make no mistake about it. How do you know that? Because you don't even need to look at what Kansas did or didn't do or could have done had they had full strength. USC played flat out amazing. If it was that exact same game, if it was that, if it was that exact same game with a non quarantined, no COVID-19 issue team, no issues with David McCormick, no issues with Jalen Wilson, Tristan and Aruna is available. USC presented a challenge to Kansas that even a full strength squad could not have overcome. Simple as that. Bottom line. You don't think I that think, if KU would have played better, USC might have played worse? Well, sure, but I don't think that I don't think that is a a, a, a thirty-five point swing. Not a not a chance. That's well, no, a thirty five. I don't think that they're thirty four points better every night. I mean, you're they, you know But they but they overall, when you look at their squad versus our squad, one hundred percent. They're a good USC, team. They're a great USC, team. USC, USC, USC would have won that game. Um, it might have been a, it would have been a closer game. Might have been a within ten game, but USC would have won that game. Make no mistake about it. 
Oh, I don't. I don't you, you can't say that with 100% definitiveness. That's, I'm with, that's crazy. I'm with Blake on this one. Like, things spiral out of control. And, and I'm not saying if you made me bet, like, if we could go re say that and you say USC is going to play the same, but we get full strength Jalen Wilson, would I bet on Kansas? No, but things spiral no, out of either. control to well, turn into a 35 point game. Like, if well, you're, you're not willing to take that bet, you're saying definitively. That's a huge difference than saying, gonna, hey, I think they would probably beat them. Yeah, Weston saying that they're not going to play that good every game. That was the ceiling. Southern California probably is only going to play. I don't know what the Haslam metric to, the Haslam metrics are. I'm betting that they have not had a game approaching that efficiency the whole year. I bet that their second place game probably isn't close. And if it is, they probably played, you know, like the little sisters technical college of the prairie, something like that. I just think it's hilarious that both of you are are so strong on Kansas would have had a much better chance to win that Absolutely. game. But if push came to shove, no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't bet on Kansas to win. Like not if that, Southern so, California is playing like that. Oh, that's what I'm saying. That's what I just. That's what I just said was that if USC played that exact same game over again with a 100 fully healthy Kansas squad, USC would still win every time. That's yeah, all I that, said. And that I is we'll, that is true. My contention is there's a 95 percent chance that if KU was healthy, Southern California would not play, play that, that good. Right. They wouldn't. 95 and, exactly well, all we have all we have talked all we have talked about so far about kansas is how poorly they matched up against usc the only player that they were missing kansas was was tristan and aruna david mccormick and jalen wilson sure jalen wilson out was for a while. sure i i uh. will i will give you that but i don't think those two guys being less than 100 equates for a 35 point swing i just don't that's well, awesome. also now that we're all so now that we've all kind of found a way to argue with each other, and I just I just agreed with Blake. I now need to go back and disagree with Blake because it just wouldn't be right if I ended on agreeing with Blake. You know, I just want to point something out because again, while I'm harping on this, the game of basketball has changed. Blake was advocating for in the second half we should have seen more touches to David McCormick, more shots from David McCormick. USC, as a team, shot 61% from the three-point line. And Blake is advocating that our 51% field goal shooter should have shot more twos in the second half. That math doesn't check out. That's never going to win. The math on the 20 – did you see what Kansas shot in the second half of the three-point line? 21%. How's that math checking out for you? Well, at least there's a chance they make Last it, right? I checked I mean, a three. There's not a chance. They were missing wide open shots and missing shots and trying to get rebounds. Kansas got massacred, massacred on the glass, 43 to 27. So Kansas wasn't getting offensive rebounds. They got eight, nine offensive rebounds to 35 defensive rebounds for Southern California. So they weren't getting second chance points. They outscored second chance points 11 to 5. So this three-point shooting theory when Kansas just had an off night is absolutely nuts. Well, last I checked, that's conceding. Uh, last I checked, a three was worth more than a two. But here, but the counter to your argument, Blake, is that it, 
they were missing the two point shots also. So wouldn't you rather if you have a percentage of two point shots than three point shots? But barely, they barely did. They shot what twenty nine percent overall. They shot twenty four percent from three. That's not a huge. I mean, they were they were shitty all over the place. So why not if you're trying to crawl your way back into a game, just start launching as many threes as you can. You're not going to win, but you might as well try to claw into it a little bit. So start launching the threes. That's going to get you into the game potentially quicker than doing anything else. They shot 44% on twos in the game. 44% is significantly different than 24%. So I don't, maybe you guys both have math degrees that I'm not aware of, but that math doesn't check out either way. It's a disappointing March. You look at what Kansas has coming back. David McCormick, Jalen Wilson, Harris Jr., Grant Foster, Thompson, Lightfoot, and Enaruna. I'm not sure what Ochai Abaji is going to look like next year. You know, I'm not really sure about – if I had to put another guy in the question mark column, you know, just Jalen Wilson, does he go pro early? I'm, I am not an expert on when guys should go and when they should not go. Um, but, you know, to me, I, I like the nucleus that KU has coming back. Bill Self typically always has good recruits. You know, I know that people are making a big deal out of his next recruiting class on Rivals is ranked 22nd, which I don't care about at all. I don't care about the recruiting rankings. I care about what they do when they get on campus. You guys know that. So uh, coming back, I I like the guys that they coming back, uh, but, you know, there are question marks. And I think Ochai Abaji has a chance that maybe he will go pro. He's the one guy that I would be worried about not being able to come back next year. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, you know, I I think that Ochai um, at least has an obligation to test the waters. And, you know, absolutely talked quite a bit about, you know, how players it's now more beneficial for them and and accessible for them to test the waters and then, you know, eventually come back. Um, I, I don't think he will come back. I think that there are opportunities for him that might not be necessarily in the NBA right away, but at least a path to the NBA. I don't think him coming back for another season will increase his stock all that much more. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised to see him go. I guess, you know, and I was actually um, tweeting back and forth with somebody the other day. It was after the loss uh, on Monday uh, and they wanted to know, uh, I had said something about, you know, being optimistic about next year. And they wanted to know, well, what, like, what do you have to be optimistic about? Like, who are we getting? Uh, you know, KJ Adams is, is a, a commit. Zach Clements is a commit. Uh, Sydney Curry is a, a transfer power forward from Juco coming in. They could all be contributors, but I wouldn't be surprised. I don't think Bill self is done. I don't think that staff is done putting this squad together for next season. Uh, I think you're going to see a, at least one grad transfer. I think you're going to see, you know, that there's a, there's a lot of talk out there that a guy by the name of Ty Ty Washington, who was a, a previous commit to Creighton uh, that decommitted from Creighton uh, has Kansas on his list. Uh, a lot of talk about Tyson Walker uh, who could potentially be a, a transfer coming into Kansas. So I think that there are, opportunities for Kansas to immediately improve. Um, And so I think that we've seen a squad that is good, young, that could get better next year. So I, I, yeah, I am more optimistic about next year than I was about this year. I don't know a thing about Ty Ty Washington, but I want him on our team. I want, I want to be cheering for Ty Ty next year. Give me Ty Ty, and I will you, be happy. All you care about is names. Hey man, just I just need some sort of something to grab grab onto, and that's that's my thing. I don't know, but give me Ty Ty Washington, I'll be happy. But look, the other thing about the roster though too is, and I'm only going to say it once because I know you guys are, are sick of me hearing it. I still think the way the roster is designed, there's got to be some sort of relief 
there's got to be some sort of, and maybe that answer is Jalen Wilson, um, but there's got to be some sort of relief, some sort of way this roster can be a little bit more flexible when you have teams that do different things. Um, and, and like I said, maybe that is Jalen Wilson. I mean, he is a, you know, he's a bigger guy. He could guard outside, but the can game I of basketball is just going quick this way. Question. Can, can yeah. I ask you a question here? Has Kansas had a good program under Bill Self or a great program? Oh, great. Absolutely. But you don't stop tinkering okay. it until you win national championships. I mean, that's absolutely the I mean, answer. And that's he what, did win a national championship, right? 2008. Yeah, 2008. And you don't you think he's just coasting now? Like he's certainly working to make this roster a national championship roster. That's his goal. Look so at, of course look he's going to do these win seasons they have had. Like I, I don't understand why you think the style is the problem. It's not a problem. Oh, but the style is not the problem. Look, the this, game of basketball. Team, sure, was but, not Blake, as good as the previous teams have been. Blake, that is the most ridiculous argument ever because it's that's to say we won a championship in '52. We won a championship in 1952. Why should we change our style from then? Because the game of basketball changes. The game wasn't even played the same in 2014, 2016. Even just the last three years, the saber metrics behind shooting the three have changed immensely, and people are adapting. Colleges are now following the NBA model just within the last three years. So what we were doing in 2014, KU is not the same. KU shot threes last year. What do you? You don't have having a big man does not not prohibit you from shooting. It's not about shooting threes. It's about also defending the threes. And I'm not saying you got to. KU's been consistently the the best defensive teams in the country they were one of the best defensive and, teams in the big how, 12 this year how how was how was uh mccormick at guarding the three how was doke at guarding the three uh who was before that um i'm trying to think of the guy from uh chick diallo how was joel he at, at guarding the three how was joel Embiid at the time at, at guarding the three lucas. how was landon lucas at guarding the three in, in the, I don't we know, lose. but we made a we lot of elite eights and final well, fours with all those guys. That's right, and we lost to USC because we got bombed by threes. We lost to Auburn because we got bombed by threes. How many mid-majors did we lose to because we got bombed by threes? You have to be able to defend, and you have to be able we to lost adapt. To, we, lost to Phil, we lost to Villanova in the tournament because they bombed threes. We lost to Oregon in the tournament because they bombed threes. Like that, And that that's one area where, Weston, I will agree with you. We have seen a consistent way that teams have beat Kansas. That's the thing about it is I don't know if it's necessarily like the 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 style of play is killing the Jayhawks or the way that teams are adjusting to Kansas is killing the Jayhawks or maybe it's a matter of both maybe those two things play into one another but teams especially in the tournament clearly know the best way to beat the Jayhawks is to just launch the threes and you know hopefully they're going to go down for you. And that's what we've seen the trend be, at least in the NCAA tournament the last few years. Well, it's true. I mean, I, I get that, that there's a preponderance of evidence of that, but that doesn't take away these statistics that show you that Kansas has been successful playing inside out and will continue to be. I don't think Bill Self's going to stop recruiting big guys inside. Wichita State, they also had a very short march as well, losing in the first round to Drake. Shockers end up the season 16-6, and 11-2 in the American, 10-2 at Coke Arena, and winners of the American Athletic Conference Championship. They lost by one, 53-52 to Drake in the first four, and it was kind of the opposite problem for the Shockers. Was it a bunch of threes? Drake was respectable, 36%, but it was the Shockers finally going ice cold from the three that did them in. Joseph Yusufu led the Bulldogs, 21 points, Morris Deze, a breakout performance, 22 points and four rebounds. Dexter Dennis had 13.7 rebounds, three blocks. Great game for them, but Tyson Etienne did not show up at the worst time. 0 for 6, 
1.1 rebound, two turnovers, and the three-point shooting was the difference. Obviously, neither team played well offensively in this game. Drake shot 38% from the field. The Shockers just 34%. Drake, 7 for 19, though. They had just enough threes. Wichita State was a nightmarish 3 for 18 from the arc. Their second worst three-point shooting day of the entire tournament. Their worst day was against Memphis. I'll defer most of the conversation to you guys as I was not able to watch this game live as I was covering Wichita State volleyball. But, Tommy, obviously, this three-point game for Wichita State could not have come at a worse time. And one point, you look at that, and also the free throws that Wichita State missed in this game. And it's not hard to see how Wichita State probably coughed up this game at the free throw line and behind the arc. Well, Blake, you didn't miss a whole lot. Uh, This game was absolutely (laughs) hideous for like 34 minutes of it. I mean, it was just, it was a tough game to watch. So slow. Um, It was, yeah, it was really slow. And now part of that was, you know, you know, the defensive effort that Wichita State had. I mean, you said that Tyson Etienne was, you know, didn't show up, but it was a non-factor. He was a non-factor on offense, but he played a really good defensive game. Fair enough. Um, You know, didn't really stand up to, you know, him being co-AAC player of the year. Uh, But that being said, he played a really good game on defense. Um, But, you know, there was a, a stretch in the first half where Drake missed 10 straight shots. And they were stuck on just six points uh, in that game. They did go on a run to end the half. Um, but Wichita State extended the lead. I think they had it up to 12 at one point in the second half. But Drake was able to sort of chip away at it little bit by little bit. And, you know, it was – and Weston, I don't know if if you felt the same way that, that I did watching this game down the stretch. It, it almost seemed like deja vu to the game that knocked the Shockers out in the American yes. tournament. Like the last couple of minutes, I felt like I was watching the exact same game that the Shockers lost to Cincinnati in the American tournament. Um, and, and it almost, you know, the Wichita state had a chance to win the game on a last second shot, the same way that the Shockers had a chance to win the game on a last second shot against Cincinnati. Alterate Gilbert pulled up maybe a second too soon. Um, maybe could have gotten himself in a little bit better position to try to make that shot for Wichita State. Ultimately, it didn't fall, and, and you know the Shockers exited early. Um, and you know the the only sort of pat on the back to myself that I will give was on last week's show. I talked about how Joseph Yusefu was had been a, a breakout budding star for the Bulldogs, um, you know, c- kind of came on midway through the season and was playing really great basketball for that stretch towards the end. It really was, you know, kind of the guy that catapulted Drake into the tournament. He finished with, with 21 points uh, in this game, and he was really kind of the the guy that got Drake back into the game and, you know, eventually won that game for the Bulldogs. So, uh, you know, obviously disappointing, but, you know, I do think – that the the last two games we've seen, actually the last three games that we saw from Wichita State, the win against USF in the opening round of the American tournament, the loss by one against Cincinnati and the loss by one uh, in the NCAA tournament really speaks to the overall narrative that I know Blake has been talking about for quite a while about the Shockers this season is, you know, their abilities down the stretch. What can they do down the stretch? You know, are they going to win games? Are they going to lose games? And right now it's kind of a, it's kind of a coin toss for Wichita state. I think, you know, that may change, hopefully will change next season with a little bit more maturity. You know, the, the, the guys are going to be one, 
one year older, you know, on the squad. Isaac Brown will have one year under his belt by that point, and hopefully, we'll be able to see, you know, the Shockers be able to put teams away um, and, and finish games, you know, with a W. But unfortunately, that was not what we saw from Wichita State uh, in the first four games. You know, that's a it's a perfect uh, segue into to what I wanted to talk about because it couldn't have been any more different. The feeling I left after watching Wichita State lose than what I did Kansas lose. Like it, it felt so deflating watching Kansas get run out of the gym. But with that Wichita State game, of course, it was heartbreaking to see that you know such a close game come down and, and to not pull it out. And especially, I think many Shockers fans, you know, not to discount Drake, um, but I think you know most of us were expecting, hey, they're going to get into that round of sixty four and you know match up with USC and see what happens. Um, but there was just so much hope. Like, I, I don't know how you couldn't watch this season. And even in that game that wasn't as exciting, be just be overly excited about the future to come. I mean, they have some real guys. In, and then, you know, as we talk about some of those young guys, the guy that frustrated me, and to your point, Tommy, of saying it felt just like the Cincinnati loss. I think I ended both – when I'm watching both games, I think I audibly, out loud, said, Alterique, what are you doing? I think I said that in both games at the end, yeah. like the decisions he made were, you know, Same. I, I mean, and I get Same. it. It's kind of one of those things too, where I love the, I, I can go do this. I can go win this mentality and I, I can respect that. But at the same time, some of the, just the, I mean, the, the decision-making just wasn't quite right though. Like, you know, he pulled up a, a little bit too early and, and I know that's tough. Like that's, you know, so easy for me to say in retrospect, but also just, there were some plays down at the end, not even just the last shot where I'm thinking, you know, I watched him just, there was a couple three pointers that he was guarding where it almost looked as if he just walked over to his guy to contest and not even, and there were threes that went in and it's like, what, I mean, in that moment in the game, how can that happen? And then, you know, kind of taking a couple of those shots down the end. And here's the thing. Etienne, I know he was he was over six on the game, over three from the three point line, but he takes that last shot. I, I mean, he should have been the guy in both situations. You had the, the opportunity kind of to really tie up the game, if I remember my points right, when the when Eltrick missed the first three, then they went down fouls. They had the, the opportunity for that half court shot. Um or not even half court. I mean, he got down there quite a ways, right? Um, I don't know what would it be like a 30 footer. Would you say, is that about right? Do you think that final yeah, shot went? Sure. Um, even in that opportunity, he had time and had ATN on the wing, the wing and, and he probably should have shot that ball. It would have been maybe a better look, but again, I, that is splitting hairs that are last second decisions, uh, tough to make in that moment. But it ultimately, you know, the truth of the matter is both in both the Cincinnati game and in this game, I kind of was like, Ultra Gilbert, man, what, what are you thinking here? What are you doing, dude? Um, but nonetheless, you gotta be excited. I mean, Morris Udezi had 22, right? I mean, and that's, I don't think anybody expected that, he, you know, he'll be back. I mean, well, pretty much everybody, right? Everybody, everybody that, the, of significant playing time other than Altery Gilbert. I love yeah, Dennis um, at the end. Yeah. Porter, Council Wade, Desi Jackson, poor bear Chandler. Um, Altery Gilbert's an interesting case. Cause he's already a senior. I oh, definitely I he agree. Does the, he does get the, yeah, but he should, theoretically. Yeah. Right. He should get the, the give back year for me. You're if he, if you got a player of the year on your team for your conference, 
maybe you go to him first. Altery yeah. Gilbert, no disrespect to him because I thought he was a great job distributing this year. He's a 29% three-point shooter. Etienne's 38%. And I grant you, just like in the Kansas game, nobody could throw it in the ocean. Wichita State shot even worse from the three than Kansas did. So it's not like you had any hope that the next shot was going in. But if you've got the player of the year in the American Conference, don't you have to find him? Don't you have to give him a give him a chance to make that play? Yeah, and, and not only that, I mean, Ultra G- Gilbert into the game over five, so it's not like he was a hot hand where we're suggesting no, with the hot hand was should have passed it. You know, and maybe the guy that t- should have taken the shot was Dexter Dennis. I mean, he was the, you know, he hit that big shot right at the end, too, sure. you know, and, and and he's kind of one of those guys, too. I I, I just love Dexter Dennis. You, he just is one of those guys, he has that look in his eyes like, I- I'm going to go get this game for us. It kind of felt like his performance – Right, his performance kind of felt like Marcus Garrett performing against USC. Like he seemed to kind of be the only one that was like, "I'm not going to let us lose this game. I'm going to do whatever it takes." And I just I love that about him. I mean, I give Odeze a little bit of credit too. Oh, I mean, sure, he's yeah, not yeah, a guy true, that normally true. scores twenty points. True, true, but they, he he did that. So, it, looking ahead for Wichita State, one guy in the transfer portal, Remy Robert, is not going to be back. He's in the transfer portal for Wichita State, which I think is kind of a non-factor. No disrespect to uh, Mr. Robert, but I. I don't really feel like the Shockers are losing anything out huge on him. But if you assume that everybody's coming back, I mean, I don't see any of those guys like Dennis Retien going to the pros as of right now. Not that they couldn't play in the pros eventually. I don't see them going to the NBA right now. You know, I, I like the team that Wichita State is coming back. I'm wondering if they will have that kind of a difference maker that maybe they need a, a, a clean Anthony early type of game changer. Can Etienne do this two years in a row? That will be the big question. Can they find a way? Can Dennis find a way to be more involved in the offense and still be the lockdown defender? Because you guys have heard me say it. Wichita State needs to play better defensively consistently. The last three games of the year, they played great defensively, but through the mo- for the the bulk of the season, they were pretty average in a lot of the defensive metrics. The last three games, they were great. If they can get those three games defensively and start hitting more shots, and you know, gosh, you you've got to look again. Eleven for twenty-two at the free throw line. Gosh, just hit a couple more free throws and do yourself a favor. Hit seventy percent of your free throws. You're in. You're in the tournament still. So you know those are the things that I look at. Uh, and the bench for Wichita State in this game, Tommy. They were zero for nine. Zero for nine with one point. So there was no bench help. And I know that bench scoring is probably the least important statistic in the NCAA tournament because you have so many media timeouts. You you really condense the minutes. A nine-man rotation goes to an eight, goes to a seven. But they needed somebody off the bench to provide a spark. And Clarence Jackson did chip in a team-high seven rebounds for Wichita State. But they needed something off the bench in that game, and, and they just didn't have anything coming. You want to talk about contributors, you know, next season for, for Wichita State. Please obviously, do. you know, obviously first, you know, the, the first name you're going to bring up is Tyson Etienne. And I know we talked about him and, and his contributions or whatever, but I would submit for consideration as an incredibly important player for Wichita State next season is Morris Udezi. And he had such a breakout year for the Shockers this year as compared to last year and the year before, you know, he started all 22 games, 
played almost 24 minutes, you know, per game and, you know, was was scoring over 10 points a game, averaging over 10 points a game uh, for the Shockers, where, you know, just the year before he was averaging about four points, you know, a game for the Shockers. Yeah. Um, you know, a one area that he could probably improve on a little bit is rebounding, you know, averaged just under five rebounds a game, which is fine. Um, but, it's if, you know, he's going to be. It's absolutely an improvement, you know, but he's obviously getting a lot more minutes this year than he was getting right. last season. So you would have liked to see that number go up a little bit. I think that will be a big focus on his in the off season. But I think that, you know, when you've got a, uh, a dominant guy like Tyson Etienne offensively for the Shockers, you know, not obviously we forget about the, the Drake game, but a, a dominant offensive player, a game changer in Tyson Etienne, a dominant defender in Dexter Dennis, and what could be an even more improved and dare I say dominant big man in Morris Udezi next season with all this, with all the supporting cast around them. I think you've got a pretty successful team potentially for Wichita state. Um, you know, I, I like where the shockers are, uh, and, and West, and this is an area that I'll agree with you because I, I, I distinctly remember you tweeting this after Wichita state lost against Drake, where you said Wichita state is going to be damn good next year. And yeah. I absolutely agree with that sentiment. Yeah. I mean, there's just so much to like, okay. I don't know if I, well, the only thing I was going to add is I don't know if I can get a future on Wichita State into the Sweet 16 next year, but if I can, I'm all in on that. Uh, Somebody find find me the company, the book that's going to support it, and I'm I'm in on it. Wow. How, what, how much are you putting on that? I, I mean, well, you'd have to show me the odds, but I'd, I'd put 100 on it. I love this, the Shockers into this. And obviously, here's the thing. As we've just talked an hour – about you know the losses to two of the Kansas programs matchups in the madness of March is just its own separate beast right like it there's so much more to it but I just am very high on this team next year I I, I think I, I we'll see what happens with Houston as far as who they have coming back and, and not I don't that I don't know a whole lot about I wouldn't be surprised if Quentin Grimes goes pro um, I'm not sure about Marcus Sasser what his his future prospects would look like. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if, if Wichita State enters the year next year as, as the favorite in the uh, American. Yeah, I w- wouldn't be surprised. And, and it's interesting you bring up matchups as well, because I think that that, you know, a lot of people say, and this can even go back to the Kansas conversation that we just had, that the personnel is not always the most important thing. What's more important in March is the matchup. And Kansas, the way that Bill Self has coached them, typically does not match up well against big men who can shoot the three. But again, you know, if you want to win Big 12 championships, Kansas matches up really well with most most teams in the Big 12 who don't necessarily have that guy. And not a lot of teams do have a lot of guys that size that match up and shoot three-pointers. And Wichita State certainly ran into that. I'm going to throw out one thing to 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 as we turn the page in the Wichita State conversation, what about Ricky Council? Ricky Council is a guy that shot 44% from the three-point line this year, and he only played 326 minutes. And down the stretch, he played less than 10 minutes in the Cincy and Drake game, a little bit too turnover-prone, 20 assists, 23 turnovers on the year, too many turnovers for the amount of time that he touched the ball. If he can come in, be a little bit more ball-secure, play better defense, and hit 44% from the three-point line and shoot some teams 
out of games, I I like Wichita State a lot. And and I might go 50-50 on that future for the Sweet 16. We will see. So Wichita State, American Athletic Conference champions, they also are out. And so all the teams are out for the NCAA tournament. Sad march for us in hey, Kansas. Hey, Blake, Blake, one one quick thing before we move sure. on that I, I want to point out. Um, you know, what is what does all of this say about the Big 12? Um, you know, obviously we spent a long time talking about Kansas. Um, you know, there's there's one Big 12 team in the Sweet 16, and that's Baylor. And that's the team that at the beginning of the season, we all said, you know, it could probably make it a national championship yeah. run there. They're the favorite. Um, you know, this was a, a conference that had six teams make it into the second round. One team made it to the Sweet 16. Um, there, I, I think that there are a lot of question marks about the conference in general, uh, you know, as we kind of dissect the end of this season and look ahead to next season as well. So just kind of kind of interesting the way the conference breakdown shake, uh, shook out. You know what well, I mean? I mean, if you thought the Big 12 looked bad, uh, what about the Big 10? Sure, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But the thing, and the thing is, too, and I, I hear what you're saying for sure, but at the same time, I mean, the format of this tournament is always going to reward the team that has the best tournament and not the best actual teams. If I know that sounds like splitting hairs, but it makes a big difference. Right? No, it's who's, true. Who's hot it's in the true. tournament, who gets hot for particular games. I mean, we see year in and year out the perennial favorites, you know, get bounced here, there, the, the other, and you end up with, with a three and a four or a one that you didn't expect and those kind of things. Which is why, which is why Weston, I'm going all in on Houston, going all in on the Cougars. I'm moving forward. Th- I'm with you. They have been gifted a bracket from the basketball gods where they, where they can continue Come to beat on. the scrubs that gifted. they've beaten all year. Come they're, on. They're, are you still on Houston is bad train? Seriously? Oh, dude, they're they're, they're the not good. 16. Yeah, they're not good. They're not good. Now you're saying they're not good. You guys, okay, that, look, come on. Hold you're, on. You're not talking about basketball today. Hold on. Here's the thing. I just want to sum up my point on this because as Shockers fans, they're not good. You have to either tell me you cannot say that Wichita State was fairly an 11 seed or close to an 11 seed, and Houston was the second, a, a two seed. If you watch them play each other, the talent of those teams were not that far separate. Now you can say now maybe you can tell me I think Wichita State had a four seed type of talent, or you can tell me, hey, I think Houston should have been more. They're more of a four seed. Wichita State's more of an eight seed. They're not based on those, talent; they're based on achievement. And I I do agree with that, and I conceded that. But that's the difference. I'm not saying I'm not saying that they weren't shouldn't have been rewarded a two seed. I'm saying I don't think they're as good as a two as a two seed should be. I mean, they're in the they're in the Sweet Sixteen. The Shocks and the Hawks are not. So, I mean, I'm I'd rather be a Houston fan. Actually, no, I would never trade in the Crimson and Blue. But you know, if I'm a Houston fan, I'm going to say, "What's wrong with my team? My team's still in the dance. Yours isn't." So, I mean, <laughs> you know, you can say that they're overrated all you want, but they're still dancing. And uh, Shocker and uh, Jayhawk fans are dancing only if they hit up the bar after the game. Royals baseball is getting here very quickly, and a major re-signing happened in the last week. The Royals re-signing catcher Salvador Perez. There's been a lot of reaction to this trade. The financials of the deal look like this. It is a $20.5 million contract over the next four years. That's the average salary. It's back-loaded. $13.5 million option season in 2026, or they can pay Salvador Perez to go on vacation to Hawaii. It's the club's option. 
Fans seem to love this extension. Baseball economists seem a little wary of this deal. Four-year deal. Salvador Perez hasn't caught 140 games since 2015, missed two, all of 2019. There's always been the nag on Salvador Perez that he's not a very good receiver of the baseball at home plate. When you look at the framing numbers, Salvador Perez typically does not do very well getting strikes called that are strikes and getting balls called strikes. However, 2020, coming off the injury year of 2019, which was obviously a huge negative, his best power year in 2020, slugging 633, a 986 OPS. And from watching him in 2020, I didn't think that his throwing arm was diminished at all. Not 1% worse than it was before Tommy John surgery. Obviously, this is a speculative move on the Royals, you're betting on how good is he going to be in his 30s? Is he going to be a Tom Brady guy that gets better with age, or is he going to fall off a cliff? Obviously, the Royals are betting on Salvi to be the guy moving into next season, and we'll see how it works out. This could be a crippling contract if he doesn't play to his potential, or it could be a great boon to have a leader like Salvador Perez in the clubhouse, and there's a lot of reaction from baseball people on both sides. The people that are critical of this move and that are negative of this move, shut up, shut up. The bottom line is this. The Royals have the second lowest revenue in Major League Baseball behind only the Miami Marlins. They are doing they are making moves right now to secure the, the, the team leader, the franchise leader long term, they're paying him what he deserves. You know, there are always going to be naysayers. There are always going to be people that don't think it's, you know, that whatever the deal is, is not a good deal. They could have paid him a dollar and people would have said, oh, that's too much or that's not enough. I mean, th- there's always going to be contrarians out there that are not going to like a certain move for various reasons. But the bottom line is this. The Royals are rewarding Salvador Perez for not only the player he has been on the field, but the icon that he has been for the Kansas City Royals and that he will continue to be. Let's not forget Alex Gordon retired last year. And so who's the face of the Kansas City Royals now moving forward? It's Salvador Perez. So what the Royals are doing is positioning Salvador Perez as the cornerstone of the franchise for the future. And you know what? There there could be a scenario, sure, where he does not perform at a level worthy of that contract in three or four years from now. But to your point, Blake, the leadership that he has, the fact that the Royals... Uh, the Royals pitching rotation is awfully young. Don't you think those young pitchers would benefit from having a veteran catcher to catch the baseball? Absolutely. They would. And I like to think for you. Sure. Sure. So you mentioned that the Royals are in such a precarious spot with the money, the financial situation, second lowest payroll in the major leagues. A baseball economist guy would say, doesn't that mean they need to be more financially prudent with their deals? (laughs) I mean, what's the whole the the, the whole slogan? You gotta you gotta you gotta spend money to make money, right? I mean, isn't that what it is? Sure. And and the and and what I think this this is more 
of a I'm, I'm looking at this from more of a macro viewpoint than I am from a micro viewpoint as specifically Salvador Perez. I'm looking at this. This I think that this is less about Salvador Perez and even less about Dayton Moore and more about John Sherman, the new owner of the Royals. The fact mm-hmm. that he was willing to go into his pockets and pay Salvador Perez, which would lead me to believe that he would probably be more willing to pay future players to stay in Kansas City, to come to Kansas City, to play in Kauffman Stadium. And that's what Royals fans should want from their owner. They should want their owner to go out and get deals done with players that want to play in Kansas City, that have either produced over time and have been a have been a cornerstone asset to the organization or somebody new to come in and help that team contend. So I have zero problem with this contract. Uh, you know, I, I think that this does far more good than it does harm. And really, I think the downside to this is relatively limited, especially if John Sherman is willing to then go out and spend more money. The only negative that I could see in this is if Salvi does not produce and then the Royals come out and say, well, we really would have liked to sign a bunch of more, bunch more players, but you know, the Salvador Perez contract is eating us alive and we can't, we can't afford that. Hopefully that doesn't happen. Hopefully this is a sign of things to come where the Royals are able to open up the checkbook and get people to come to Kansas city. You know, I don't know how much you guys were paying attention game by game, but I think it was back in 2013. It might have been 2014. My boy, Rex Hudler, caught a lot of heat. I don't know if you guys remember this, but he made a comment during the game that Salvador Perez would look great in Yankees pinstripes. And boy, did he catch some heat for that, right? Yeah, Uh, I remember that. And as he should have. What a stupid thing to say on a Royals television broadcast absolutely and and i love rex rex is fantastic i enjoy, i know people it's a love hate some people hate rex i love rex but anyways that my point is not about rex he makes that comment about salvi being in, in pinstripes and and this is a change of tide for the royals and as a fan you have to understand what this means there would have been a time and the reason rex was making that comment that used to be it we would get a star and it's just a matter of well when does he get traded to a bigger, better franchise? When does he, you know, leave in free agency for a bigger, better franchise? And we've reached a place, and whether it's with Ron, uh, John Sherman or because, you know, we've we've won, we've, we're at a better place with Dayton Moore, where we can retain the guys that we grow up and watch and, and love and, and get an attachment to. And, and that's one thing I think baseball does better than either of the other two sports, whether it's NBA or um, the NFL. And maybe there's an argument to be made about the NBA, but – the attachment I think fans feel with the players because, and maybe it's just because you can visibly see them better necessarily. You get a little bit more interaction. You see more games on a day-to-day basis, but the fans in Kansas city are attached to Salvador. He is fantastic. He, my mother-in-law would have probably not spoken to anyone for two weeks had Salvi left for a different team. She is a Salvi fanboy. But <laughs> so when I saw this this signing, like my initial reaction, of course, was I was excited. I love Salvi. I want him in Kansas City. But then I kind of had that internal 
you know, debate with myself and it's about kind of the same thing Tommy's already covered, right? Like, okay, he's 31, man. I hate kind of paying a guy at 31, but what he means to this pitching staff, I think is, is probably more, more important than anything else. As we have Brady Singer, as we have Asa Lacey waiting, you know, as we have Jackson Kowar, as we have Chris Bubich, you know, all those guys, Salvi makes better. And, And yes, I understand there's some metrics about, you know, his framing, and even, you know, in his Weston, I have a question for you. Yeah. That leadership and presence that you're talking about right now and presence in the community, how much is of that? How much is that worth on a contract? It, I think it's worth even more. As you mentioned, we're the second smallest payroll. Like, I think it's hard for teams with small payrolls or small, re- you know, I guess re- revenue because it's not second lowest payroll. It's, it's revenue coming in in small markets. It's hard to get those those players that can impact your fan base. And Salvador Perez has done that. And they show the precedent with Alex Gordon had done that. So it, it's rewarding those guys for being a, a bigger picture. But at the same time, he's also improving this ball club. Even as he declines, his ability to manage that pitching staff you know, it's talked about all across the league. You hear broadcasters talk about it. You hear other pitching coaches talk about it. You know, Salvi means so much to that pitching staff. So even as the bat declines, I mean, it's the, the greatest example. And I hate to even mention the the Cardinals because I despise them. But I mean, it's what Yadi, <laughs> it's what Yadier Molina has done for that St. Louis pitching staff year in and year out. That's what Salvi can be even as the bat declines. Here, here's the other thing that I want to point out. Um, don't think for a second that part of this isn't due to the other franchise that is right across the parking lot from the Royals. And we guys, we have talked plenty on this program about the culture that Clark Hunt and Brett Veach and Andy Reid have built with the Chiefs over the last several years. This is the kind of culture move that John Sherman and Dayton Moore and Mike Matheny are attempting to build with the Royals. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not saying for a second that Salvador Perez is Patrick Mahomes or that Salvador Perez is even Travis Kelsey, but Salvador Perez is the cornerstone of this franchise. And we have seen guys over the years NFL players wanting to come and play for the Chiefs because of the culture, because of the front office, because of the coaching staff. And these are some of the exact same things that John Sherman and Dayton Moore are doing in Kansas City. I'm sure that you guys saw the news that Bobby Witt is going back to the minor leagues, right? He's going to start the season start the season in the minors, but there have been plenty of examples of, you know, all all of the stories nationally of these teams. I think the Mariners were in the news a couple of months ago about one of their executives or their president was on record talking about how they're deliberately manipulating service time from their players. So they don't have to pay them as much and like things like that. And the guy ended up resigning and he lost his job because of those comments that were recorded. Dayton Moore is on record saying we want to take care of our guys. And that is absolutely because of what is going on just across the parking lot with the Kansas City Chiefs. They want to have that culture. It's apples and oranges. I understand that between the NFL and Major League Baseball. They're they're two completely separate beasts. But you got to do what you got to do to keep your stars in place and to get that culture going. You know, Weston, to your point about Yadier Molina, the only difference between Molina and Perez is durability. I think that's pretty much it. You know, Molina has been pretty durable throughout the course of his career. Uh, You know, uh, Perez has been on the injured list each of the last four seasons. That's the only, 
I think the major risk that you're looking at with a contract like this, but from a culture perspective, I absolutely believe the Royals are taking a page out of the chief's playbook. I wouldn't jump in. You know, I, I, Oh, go ahead. Weston. Sorry. I just want to jump in real quick because I want, I think you hit the, the nail on the head when you talk about ownership and John Sherman and you see, you know, you made the comment, you said, you know, Salvi's not Patrick Mahomes, but you're right. The Royals have this new in ownership. John Sherman and Patrick Mahomes have taken the ownership of these Kansas city Royals and <laughs> turned it in to the culture that the Kansas city chiefs have. It's a perfect fit. I love it. You're right. <laughs> I don't know. You can't even say that with a straight face. No, I, I don't believe that Patrick Mahomes is, anything to do with this but you know i i always hate to be the guy that comes in and tells people things that's the truth but stuff that they don't want to hear only seven primary catchers have more than one season with an ops plus above the league average beyond the age of 31 and only three have done it over twice salvador perez i think presents a big risk to kansas city uh with this contract but I still like the contract. Why? Because I like Salvador Perez. How can you not love this guy? You know, he, he's just so affable. He's he's so such a colorful personality. By the way, he is, and I know that, you know, kind of throwing the horn on myself here because I said spring training doesn't matter, and it doesn't. He is tearing up spring training right now. Now, is that because pitchers haven't actually thrown a lot in live situations over the last few months? I, I don't know. It's a weird time to be trying to judge things off spring training right now in this coronavirus pandemic. But I just like Salvador Perez, and I like having him around, and I think that he will help these young pitchers mentally – I hope that maybe he can get coached up to be a better receiver of the ball behind the plate. I still think he's got outstanding arm strength, and I think that he can continue to hit for power. And he's hitting for more powers in spring training and last year than he had the previous few seasons. Can he stay healthy? I don't know. If the Chiefs have to put somebody else in at catcher and have Salvi maybe be a DH, I don't think that Kansas City – comes out on the positive end of that contract if that's the case. But if he can catch 140-plus games per season over the next four, I think that Kansas City not only has a chance to to get their money's worth out of that contract, but it has a chance to be really good. And no matter if you like the signings, I know that I was kind of uh, – Luke, let's say lukewarm to Andrew Benintendi and rather bearish on Carlos Santana. I do like that the Royals are making moves. They're, it looks like that they are trying. And, you know, that's all you could really ask for if you're a Royals fan is that the Royals are going to try. And I think that they are doing that. Next week on the show, and I'm kind of writing a check here for Tommy that he'll have to cash. I think it's time. I think we have to do our Royals official Royals preview next week for the season because we're not yeah. doing it this week. Opening day is like nine days, seven days away. So next week is going to be the official Royals preview of the Keeper of the Games podcast. So Royals fans, hope to see you next week. We'll be talking a lot of Royals baseball then. Tommy? It's that time of show. It's time to hit the music for the Wichita Whip Around. Three stories from Wichita Sports this week that you need to know about and you probably missed. Weston, we will start with you. Give us your Wichita Whip Around story. And please, for the love of everything that is holy, do not make it a Weston Whip Around. <laughs> So I've got He's two. smirking. It's going to be a Weston whip around. I've got two. The first one is not about me in any way, shape, or form. Um, the Wichita State Shockers softball had a big win. And let me get the date. Actually, it was on March 21st. 
So it was just a couple days ago uh, against number six Oklahoma Oklahoma State. It was a nine two win, and it was the, it's their highest uh, ranked win in program history this week as they beat Oklahoma State nine to two. It was a four to uh, four. It was the highlight of a 4-1 finish at the Mizuno Classic as the Shockers collected their se- this their second ranked win of the season, and they're 17-4 and on the season now. And so obviously, b- big win for the Shocker softball program, but it was also capped off by a Sports Center top 10 play oh, from Bailey Nickerson. Uh, and I, I, w- I won't use the word robbed, but it was a nice like running catch into the wall in center field, kind of sliding. Yeah, absolutely. Might have been, you know, you're probably looking at a double, maybe a triple, you know, if she doesn't catch that ball. But Sports Center top 10, uh, you know, I don't know if it made a web gym status with it. With, I don't know if baseball, it's baseball tonight even on anymore. Um, but unbelievable catch from Bailey Nickerson uh, for the Shockers as they get their highest ranked win in program history and move to 17 and 4. And Neely Herring, by the way, a junior infielder out of uh, Chandler, Oklahoma, was on the American Athletic Conference Weekly Honor Roll this week, as was Bailey Lang, a transfer from UNI, a senior from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Fifth straight appearance on the Honor Roll, went 2-0 and in three appearances for the Shockers, and they open up American play against East Carolina this weekend with that series starting at 5 o'clock at Wilkins Stadium. Tommy, do you want to go? I have a feeling, I just have a sneaking suspicion that the second story is going to actually be a Weston whip around. So do you want to go or do you want to take the chance that this is actually a Wichita whip around? No, I'll, I'll go because I actually have two stories as well. Um, but neither one of them have sure, anything to do ahead. with me with, with me personally. So um, at least I make that oh, promise. You to all you're of actually you. playing the game correctly. Then do they, do they I, have I anything am. to do with I, me? That's what I do. Yeah. I am a rule follower. No, 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 they don't. They don't. Western. No. It's not the neither, Western whip around. Yeah, neither one of them do. Uh, so here's here's my number one story. Uh, I don't know if you guys caught it uh, over the weekend. I know a lot of people were so into March Madness that they completely forgot about uh, the American Cornhole League coming to Wichita last weekend at Coke Arena <laughs> on the campus of Wichita State. It was the national tournament for the American Cornhole League last weekend. Uh, and guys, Kansas is ranked number five among states with American Cornhole League players based on average points per round among its players of all levels from beginners to pros. This was the four or the second out of four upcoming tournaments that are national for cornhole and it uh, i believe it leads up to the national championship tournament in rock hill south carolina that's where the acl is headquartered uh, headquartered so this was called the acl cornhole mania matt guy who is the winningest player in american cornhole it, uh, I believe he played in this tournament. I don't have results in front of me. I couldn't find great results. I found the preview <laughs> article on the Wichita Eagle. So I have no idea how it all turned out, but I'm a little bit bummed that I did not get a chance to uh, Where watch. Where are the metrics? The Give me the stats, Tommy. Uh, I I couldn't tell you. Um, that may have to be some homework that I do uh, later on and Should. tell you about it. I don't exactly even know how you do that, but that happened over the weekend. And, and by the way, shout out to... <laughs> Uh, shout out to my buddy Josh Howell, 
who works for Visit Wichita. He is the sports sales director for Visit Wichita, and I know he was a big driving force in bringing the American Cornhole League to Wichita for this tournament last weekend. And they were able to do so inside Coke Arena. I believe they had 2,000 spectators on hand, uh, and so a pretty cool event in Wichita. So my Wichita Whip Around story, not directly in Wichita, but very Wichita adjacent, as Bethel is the number 11 team in the country. It was a great week for the KCAC, which sometimes kind of gets looked down upon as not being that good of a college football league. Bethel 11th, Avila 20th, and yeah, these uh, Southwestern Mound Builders 23rd. Yeah, 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 these guys here. Uh, Kansas Wesley had also got both, but in all seriousness, Southwestern Avila and Bethel to be at the top. And what a power structure shift we have seen in the KCAC with no Sterling there anywhere at the top. Absolutely shocking right now to not see that team up there at the top of the standings. The tides have definitely changed. And and what an outstanding job Bethel has done completely turning around. When I got to Wichita, Bethel was a place that you would drive through. Like literally opposing teams would come and bring a track and drive it through campus. That's how bad they got beat. And they're the number 11 team in the country. I cannot be more complimentary of what Bethel has done. They just put in brand new turf up there, I think one or two seasons ago. So the fans in Newton have got a great product out there. Uh, They have started fantastic Fantastic start for them to be ranked number 11 in the first down playbook, top 25 pull for KCAC teams. And an adjacent shout out in the KCAC to a Wichita player, Friends University sophomore defender Eric Carter was the KCAC men's soccer defensive player of the week. So great job to him for the Falcons. And now, Tommy, I almost want to go back to you first. Because that way you can cut the music before the Western. No, 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 no. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. No, 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 no. Hold on. Hold on. You got to segue to me because you set me up so perfectly, Blake, to go just an hour south of Wichita down to Winfield, Kansas, because I want to talk about that number 21 Southwestern Mound Builder football team as they had not one, not one, not two, but three KCAC players of the week. Three, they swept them. Offense, defense, special teams. Let's just talk about that. Keyshawn Wyatt, running back for for Southwestern, had 22 uh, 22 carries for 250 yards and three touchdowns in the win over Sterling. Uh, Linebacker Grant Torgerson had 12 tackles, one tackle for loss um, in in the win over Sterling. And then linebacker Jean-Francois Kouami, uh, senior linebacker. <laughs> you to say his name. Well, it's K O U A M E. So I'm going to be honest. Hand up. Don't know. He had a, um, a fake <laughs> punt that he returned 67 yards for a touchdown. So I want to give a big shout out to linebackers coach Connor Seba over there in Southwestern as he had two of his linebackers show up in the KCAC Player of the Week and a sweep for the Mound Builders as they take. They're just storming through this KCAC. Let's go. go. Go ahead, Tommy. You have to clean up this mess now. You let him go I first. I mean, you know that wasn't the I don't, that wasn't the Weston whip around, but it was kind. I mean, it was kind of Weston adjacent whip around. <laughs> I guess you could it say. Um, so for for my final story, um, I'm going to go back to March Madness. Going to go back to the NCAA tournament. 
guys, there were so many upsets in the first and second round of the NCAA tournament. I mean, you had teams like Oral Roberts that made it to the Sweet 16. You had teams, you know, that just all of, you know, Ohio, there was an upset there. There were multiple teams that had big time. Oregon State was another one. Big time upsets uh, in the first and second round. One of the biggest ones was Abilene Christian in the first round upsetting Shaka Smart and the Texas Longhorns. And you're probably thinking, where in the world is a Wichita connection to that? Associate head coach for Abilene Christian is a guy by the name of Brett Tanner, who grew up in Rose Hill, Kansas, played (laughs) basketball for Rose Hill in the early 1990s, went on to play in college at Allen County Community College, also played at Emporia State, started his coaching career, Uh, I believe he coached at Fort Scott. He was one of Chris Beard's assistant coaches at Fort Scott for a couple of years, spent a long time at Stephen F. Austin, and now is the associate head coach for Abilene Christian. So congratulations to Brett Tanner. Congratulations to Abilene Christian. I know their, their run is over with, but they were able to get that first round upset against Shaka Smart and the Texas Longhorns. Pretty awesome. Congratulations, Coach Brett Tanner of Rose Hill. For nice. Abilene Christian. That, that's what I got. So Rockets representing, and that is your Wichita whip around. Time for the closeout of the show. Additions, corrections, and retractions. One correction I'm actually going to call on myself. I said that KU shot 44% for the two in that game. It was actually only 32%, but Tommy, Thank that's you. still better than 24%. And the Jayhawks were still dreadful from the three-point line in the second half of that game. Any additions, corrections? you got to launch threes. No, you don't. Not when you're missing them wide open like they were in that game. Any additions, corrections, or retractions for either of you gentlemen? Uh, I've got an addition. Yeah, I do have an addition uh, that that I can make. Go ahead, Tommy. Okay, I'll go go first. Go ahead. Here, here's my addition to the sh- to the show. Um, again, not a very good place to mention this. We mentioned one of these last week on the show. Um, another transfer, actually another couple transfers out of Bruce Weber's program in Manhattan. Yeah. Uh, Joe Petrakis, who was a preferred walk-on. He was a redshirt sophomore. Uh, he is a scholarship player now, but joined the team as a preferred walk-on in 2019. Uh, he left the program. He entered the transfer portal. Um, and then in the last week, also Dwayne. Juan Gordon and Rudy Williams joined Antonio Gordon all in the transfer portal. So four players. Now, the interesting thing about Joe Petrakis is that he grew up a Kansas State fan. I think he had a lot of family that attended Kansas State, very passionate about the Wildcats, but he entered the transfer portal. And in unrelated news at Kansas State University, Gene Taylor, athletic director, received a contract extension with a raise on Wednesday. Um, So uh, obviously no correlation there, but a couple uh, quick notes there with Kansas State. Well, and also Mike McGurl announced that he's actually going to be coming back next season yeah. for Kansas State as well. One of the additions I was going to make. Tommy, you have been on the uh, put. I mean, I guess you both kind of sounded like you were on the Fire Bill Self uh, website fan club there earlier. Uh, I know that you what? said uh, with the the fact that okay, he's playing basketball wrong for the last 15 years. You both said that You're on the show. Mind. Go You're back and mind. I didn't say that at all. Uh, you absolutely, you and Weston both said that. But what your what are your thoughts on Bruce Weber? And I know you've been very negative on him. Uh, now losing more players, he does get Mike McGurl back, but more players transferring out of that Wildcat program. 
First of all, I'm not even sure that I want to entertain that question because I never one time said fire bill self and I never no. would say fire bill self. Um, but regardless, you, you just said you were on the fire bill self camp. But regardless, that was hyperbole. Uh, Fair enough. But regardless of that, where there's smoke, there's fire. This is almost getting into the same category with Bruce Weber that Weston and I talked about all the way back, you know, last spring when what was it? Seven players were going to transfer out of Greg Marshall's program. Now, I'm not suggesting that the same sort of thing is going on at Kansas State as what was going on at, at Wichita State. But clearly there is disconnect there. Clearly there are issues. Um, and, you know, I, I think a lot of Wildcat fans were, you know, relieved that the season was done, hoping that they could build on kind of the train wreck of this season into next season. But, you know, I know Mike McGurl is coming back, but when you're losing, you know, four players, a couple of them are impact players and Antonio Gordon and, and uh, Dewan Gordon, um, you know, that's, that's going to be tough for Bruce Weber to come back from. And it was weird that he, that Weber said that Gordon transferred because he wanted a bigger role in the offense. Although that was really didn't, didn't seem good. Weston additions, corrections or retractions for you. Well, uh, so going off uh, the K-State talk there, the only thing I want to say is I do think that transfer portal is going to, it's, it's continuing to grow and this is going to be part of the new normal, but it's, what's the line, right? Like where Tommy's talking about where there's smoke, their fire is, Four going to be start to become a fairly normal number for teams, or is that going to be like okay, four or five? That's a lot. That's right there at that line, which seems like it's going to be normal. My addition is, and it looks like we all were we're kind of staying in in Manhattan for this uh, for these additions. I wanted to talk about Kansas State football. There, there's been some announcements, um, and it was just uh, recently we've got defensive back Julius Brintz transferring in from Iowa, rust yeast, another defensive back transferring in from Louisville, uh, linebacker, Eric Munoz from Utah state, uh, defensive tackle, Timmy horn coming in from Charlotte and tight end Daniel E Bebe. At least that's what it says on the pronunciation thing. The phonetic spelling I don't, I'm still not sure if I got that right. Uh, coming in from Illinois. Say that again. He's, he's Say already that again. your favorite. <clears throat> Hold on. Give me give me a chance. He's guys. already your favorite player, isn't he, Wes? <laughs> Just admit it. Yeah, my favorite Say player can State. Say it again. Daniel Ematorbebe. Someone correct? Someone from Kansas hey. State, reach out. Tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> Maybe we can get email hey, bebe bebe. on the show. Hey, baby. <laughs> oh, my God. But anyways, a bunch of hey, transfers bebe. coming into hey, the bebe. program. <laughs> the players coming into the program for, for the Wildcat football team while they're exiting the program uh, over at uh, over in Bramblage. So the names have been upgraded, which is the only thing that Weston bases your team off of. So if you don't have good names on your team, <laughs> Weston just thinks you suck. True. Either you um, have good my players one addition – my, my one addition is uh, my extra addition. Newman women's basketball coach Darren Spence has resigned from the program following nine seasons in Wichita. Jets went 120 and 113 with him at NU. He's the winningest coach in Newman women, uh, women's history. Jets went 4 and 18 in the MIAA this past season, and a national search will begin shortly to fill the open spot on the roster that's got a lot of talent coming back and was you know, very, very close to being a much, much better season. And I personally think 
thank Darren Spence for all the great conversations all the time. He and uh, his assistant coach, Clarissa Crum, really did a great job taking care of me and helping me do my job as the voice of the Jets. And I wish him nothing but the best. And, I, you know, he accomplished a lot at Newman and ought to be commended for it, uh, winning his coach in Newman history. So thank you, Coach Darren Spence, from from me personally. Uh, that is hey, it. Blake, That's all Blake, I, I, I do. I do. Blake I, Blake, I do have one more thing for yeah. you. One question for you, actually. How did it feel to be the counter-programming element against <laughs> the first four game for Wichita State? And it was Wichita State volleyball, and you were on the call on ESPN3. Well, uh, I don't feel like I did a very good job, and I'm sure the people who tuned in were like, man, let's uh, let's go ahead and get Shane Dennis back in here as soon as possible. <laughs> um, I, I thought I did better than Memphis game, honestly. But yeah, I, I was surprised. Honestly, to be quite honest, I was pleasantly surprised by how many fans there were at Coke Arena to watch that match. I think that there is a very core, passionate Wichita State volleyball fan base, that that's what they want to be about. They want to be there supporting Coach Lamb and the volleyballers. And those ladies work extremely hard. They're in the middle of a really big losing streak. They started the season 8-0. They haven't won since. They got swept by Kansas and Lawrence. I can't tell you exactly what the issue is. They've had some sur- some some problems on the service errors. They've been beaten at the service line, getting out aced. Too many service errors. But, you know, like Chris Lamb has forgotten more about volleyball than I could ever know. So I would, I would never want to tell Chris Lamb what's wrong with his program. But, you know, obviously – it had been a really promising program and a, a promising start to the year. And now unless Wichita State beats Houston, which is the number one seed in the West, Western side of the American Athletic Conference uh, division, they're undefeated in American Conference play. Unless they beat the Cougars twice and get help, they will not get into the postseason tournament, which obviously that's really disappointing after starting the year eight. No, I, you know, we were hoping that Wichita State Volleyball would be coming back. Not that it won't next year. They've got good players, but uh, obviously not, not so this year. But uh, yeah, I'm sure our ratings got absolutely crushed. Crushed, Tommy, is what you're looking for. Absolutely annihilated on the ratings Blake, in that game. Blake, I've got a, uh, I've got my initial or my season opener sand volleyball game on Tuesday. Any interest in come giving it a call? We might need someone to give a little coverage. <laughs> that would be a negative. And that'll Ouch. wrap up the show, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Keeper of the games for episode 12 of season two. We'll be back next week. Once again, we are going to be heavy into the Royals for the first segment of the show, unless something crazy happens. Uh, By the way, real quick before we, I think it was Weston, uh, shout out to you. You actually did get something right. Um, (laughs) Called the next next, uh, football coach for the University of Kansas. Interim head coach is your guy. Emma Jones, I'm I'm excited. If if nothing else, I think it's always a positive to to see that the signs coming out that the players are loving that Emma Jones in place, and I think that's always a good starting place when your players are at least excited about the guy who is leading them. I I think that's a good place to start from. Tommy, any thoughts on Coach Jones at least for now? Yeah, no, I I think that's the right move to make. Uh, it I agree. sounds like sounds like when when Jeff Long named Mike DeBoard as the interim head coach. Uh, that was met with universal disdain by people in the administration, <laughs> the players, uh, the fan base. I mean, just about everybody. So um, it was a good thing that um, the university chancellor, Gerard, and interim athletic director, Kurt Watson, I think, you know, made the right choice. They were able to flip things around and give it to Emmett Jones. And I think he'll do a, I think he'll do a, as good of a job as he absolutely can. 
Obviously, if there's a new KU football coach by next week or a new athletic director, we'll lead the show with that. I'm not thinking that's going to be the case. But as Tommy said, the search committee that hired Bill Self was led by an interim athletic director, so anything can happen. Next week, Royals baseball. Plan to see you then. Once again, cogsports.com, cogpod on Twitter. Find it, like it, share it, and subscribe it on all your favorite podcasting platforms, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, so many others all across Apple, Google, find it everywhere, share it with your friends. We really appreciate it. And of course, you can watch it on YouTube if you dare. So for Weston and Tommy, I am Blake. Real quick for our dear and beloved audio listeners, Tommy and Weston, your Twitter handles, please. You can follow me at tweets from Tommy at WMills94. And I am at B-E Crips, B-E-C-R-I-P-P-S on Twitter. That's our show, Royals Baseball. We will see you next week on Keeper of the Games. Take care, guys. You've been listening to Keeper of the Games with Tommy Caster, Weston Mills, and Blake Cripps. Don't forget to subscribe, download, and listen on all major podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and more. Visit our website at cogsports.com. Find the podcast and videos on Facebook and YouTube at Keeper of the Games. And follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at cogpod. That's K-O-G pod.